to the uh, Religion in Practice Conversation Series podcast. That's our opening episode, and we are thrilled and very, very honored and happy to have Anna Krimala Buse as our first uh, speaker of the of the season. Um, who is a professor of international studies in the Department of uh, Political Science, the director of the Europe Center, and um, senior fellow at the Freeman Spotty Institute at Stanford University. Her research focuses on the historical development um, of the state and its transformation political parties, religion and politics, and post-communist politics. Other areas of interest include populism, informal institutions, and the role of temporality and causal mechanisms in social science explanations. She is the author of three books and many articles, I'll just name three major books, uh, Redeeming the Communist Past, The Regeneration of Communist Successor Parties, published by Cambridge University Press, Rebuilding Leviathan, Party Competition and State Development in Post-Communist Europe, again, uh, Cambridge University Press, and my favorite of her books, Nations Under God, How Churches Use Moral Authority to Influence Politics, Princeton University Press. She's also a recipient of numerous awards and prestigious fellowships. A few of them are Carnegie and Guggenheim fellowships. The focus of today's conversation is her new book, which is The Sacred Foundations of Europe. Title of today's talk is Tilly Goes to Church, The Religious and Medieval Roots of the European State. Anyway, we are very thrilled to have an opportunity to host you today, Professor Trimar Buse, so the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, so I didn't prepare a formal presentation. Um, I wasn't sure that that was, that was didn't quite get the ground rules. Um, but let me talk briefly about the argument of the book. Um, I basically argue that in order to understand the formation of the European state, we need to look at the medieval Catholic Church and the ways in which conflict with this church and emulation of church templates really laid the ground for subsequent state formation. Now, the dominant account of state formation in Europe has always been the Bellicist account. And these are people like Charles Tilly, being to some extent Spreut and others, who basically argued that to understand the formation of the state, we need to look at the early modern period, where the massive, violent warfare between states led to two different developments. On the one hand, a consolidation of states from many into far fewer. Um, the famous line is Charles Tilly's, where he says that you know, there are 400 states or something like that um, around 1400, and that drops down to 30 by 1900. So there's a consolidation of states going on on the one hand, and on the other, these pressures of warfare lead uh, states to form institutions of taxation, of parliaments, of representation, and so on. So warfare basically in the early modern period between secular rulers leads to the consolidation of territorial states on the one hand and to the sort of you new know, functional rise of taxes and, and parliaments. And what I argue instead is that if you know, Tilly's famous line skates over the fact that the fragmentation actually persists up until the mid 19th century, that there is no consolidation of states during the early modern period. It all occurs much, much later during the 19th century. And the fact on the ground for the vast majority of history, including the early modern period, is a highly fragmented Holy Roman Empire, a very fragmented Italy, 
Um, and those are basically not consolidating in any way through warfare in the early modern period. And there's the reason behind this is because the causes of territorial fragmentation and consolidation um, basically need to go, we need to go much further to explain that. And that is basically the kind of papal warfare and papal conflict that we see in the 13th and 12th centuries. We're basically beginning with the investment, even before the investiture conflict. Popes are chafing underneath um, the sort of, you know, the, these powerful Holy Roman emperors and their constant incursions into territory. And what they basically wind up doing is gathering allies who are also worried about the Holy Roman Empire and making sure that the Holy Roman Empire fragments into a whole bunch of little principalities. And the, Rome, and the Roman Emperor withdraws from Italy, never attained centralized power, and is always constantly beholden to all these tiny principalities. So it's the church that leads to the fragmentation of Europe, and this fragmentation is persistent because once these, uh, these territories are fragmented, the local bishops, the local rulers, the local princes all have as a vested interest to maintain this fragmentation. And the Holy Roman Emperor never really, really regains the centralized power that he would like. So the story of territorial consolidation, basically, that the Bellicists have told us is wrong because the fragmentation is persistent and it has religious um, orders. So what about the domestic institutional story? Well, here it turns out that institutions such as taxes and parliaments and the rule of law are not simply functional responses to the pressures of early modern warfare. Instead, they all arise much, much earlier. There's a legal revolution that takes place in the church um, and in, in civil law as well, with the rediscovery of Roman law in the 11th and 12th centuries. And what you basically have is um, the first universities come online in 1088 as law schools in Bologna. Um, you have the founding of uh, sort of, you know, the rule of law and sort of, you know, the rediscovery of law on the one hand between sort of, you know, church canon law and civil law going hand in hand, mutually influencing each other. You also have the rise of parliaments um, that, as Deborah Bukayanis shows in her fantastic books, were originally served as legal courts, right? They're the places for the adjudication of disputes. But insofar as they served a representative role in these adjudication of disputes, it's all because of the church and the templates of what do councils look like? What does proctorial representation look like? Why is it that these representatives uh, function not as, um, they basically function as delegates? not simply with, you know, as, sorry, they actually have a mandate rather than functioning simply as delegates. All of this has to do with the church and the templates that the church gives for the rise of parliaments, most of which arise in the 13th century, um, much, much earlier, and certainly not uh, long before the early modern period. And finally, when it comes to taxation, um, as Lisa Blades and others have shown, crusade taxes were sort of a fundamental way in which the secular rulers learned how to collect taxes. And so what we see is the church, on the one hand, pioneering tax collection strategies and tactics, and secular rulers taking it up. So these sort of famous institutions of law, parliaments, and taxation all arise much, much earlier, and they all arise in response to the Catholic Church's templates and to the conflict with the Catholic Church in the first place. So basically, this is sort of, you know, a revisionist view that's based on a lot of histori historiographical work um, that's been done in the intervening time. And but the importance of the church and sort of shaping fundamentally what the European state looks like. Now, the critique of Belicis um, has already, you know, the Belicis account has come under fire from people who've taken a look at Latin America and Africa and simply not seen the same patterns. And what I'm trying to do here is to also question the applicability of those kinds of templates to Europe itself. You know, the European state formation has always been seen the archetype against which 
other instances of state formation are not necessarily being measured, but they're certainly being compared to. And I think our basis for comparison ought to be different. It's not sort of, you know, these early modern warfare-driven states. It's a much more sort of complicated process that's willy-nilly driven by emulation, religious conflict, um, and all of it is happening in the Middle Ages as opposed to the early modern period. Fascinating. Thank you so much. And um, and there, there are a lot of uh, interesting uh, questions which uh, are out there. And thanks to Andrea, as a good colleague of mine, for preparing um, uh, for this talk. So, so we, when we talk about territories and territorial control in the Middle Ages or pre-Westphalian period, what does territorial control entail in Europe? You know, of course, unfold that. Another question is how different was it from our modern understanding of jurisdictional boundaries and, and, and monopoly of violence within territorial limits? Right. So the two things I would say is that boundaries mean something very different, right? So control of territory is not sort of you know, what we think of as you know, modern states, right? There is no leg full legibility. There is no sort of you know, ability to see where every, every, um, you know, what every citizen is doing. There's no ability to broadcast power, central power, into every circuit area. And boundaries, which is the second part, are also much more porous. So we can think of more as, so you know, these are more like radio stations broadcasting power, um, but there's overlap. There are places where there's silence and there's no sort of territorial authority being exercised. It's very, very different from our image of these crisply delineated uh, national boundaries. That's the one, first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, you know, we used to have an image of uh, medieval, uh, medieval authority being exercised through a system of feudalism, right? This fairly crisply defined hierarchy with the king at the top and the nobles and his, their vassals and then the peasants at the very bottom. And what historians have really done since basically the late 1990s is to show us that this is a wrong image. We very rarely see these crisp cellular structures. We very rarely see this kind of hierarchy. There are reciprocal relationships everywhere. That's absolutely the case. But they're not neatly arranging these hierarchies. And so instead, the best way to think of medieval authority is as occurring on multiple levels, as overlapping, and as never being very crisply defined. And that authority also takes different forms. Um, I think this is a third difference. We don't have sort of, you know, this sort of modern state's monopoly on violence. Most kings ruled not by sort of, you know, threatening their nobles to uh, throw them in jail, but instead by cajoling and persuading and getting the nobles on board to, whatever, to fund and to support whatever projects the king wanted. So again, it's a very different image from the modern state and certainly a different image from you know, sort of crisply defined territorial authority with uh, crisply defined functions and with the sort of threat of uh, the monopoly of violence always looming in the background. And, and, and the second question was, how did the medieval church exercise its, its power, obviously, over, over space and people? And was it one among many forms of political spatial units that existed before the modern state, or was it fundamentally different from other forms of power and other actors in medieval Europe? So the, you know, the medieval church has an interesting contradiction because on the one hand, it doesn't, um, it doesn't control the territory the same way that kings want to control territory. There are the papal states, which are very much sort of, you know, the temporal possessions of the church. But for the most part, the church makes this claim that it, has, it exercises universal power over the entire world. It has the access to the divine. Its power is both spiritually and divinely inspired. And so this makes these very universal claims about uh, church authority extending everywhere. 
And these, of course, get contested, they get modified. But the fundamental aspect here is that this is not something that respects any kind of territorial boundaries, on the one hand. On the other hand, the church really reifies subsequent territorial division of Europe, because it itself is organized into bishoprics and parishes, which are fundamentally territorial units, right? So bishops exercise authority over multiple parishes within which priests exercise authority defined by territory, right? And so on the one hand, the church makes these very broad claims about its authority extending over all of Christendom. On the other, um, it very much sort of, you know, uh, lays, the, lays down the groundwork for the subsequent territorial division of authority in Europe by operating through parishes and bishoprics um, and dividing up its authority that way. And what I find interesting in my work in Orthodox Christian churches, for example, there is a significant and striking difference between canonical territories of the church and territorial mm -hmm. borders of the state, which in practice right. means that there are, again, if we kind of zoom into the current conflict and war in Ukraine, the Ukrainian the spiritual space, canonical, is part of the Russian canonical territory. So I wonder if such, I mean, overwhelmingly, I mean, there is a, a dispute between them and Constantinople, but I mean, 12,000 parishes of the Russian Orthodox Church are physically uh, located in the Ukrainian territory. So that, of course, creates conflicts. And that seems to be the problem of Orthodox Christianity, by and large, saying that yes. there is an ambiguity on the one hand on territoriality and sort of spatial dimensions of nationhood or religion, ethnicity, and the canonical part. Is there such conflict in Catholic Church, or how does that work in medieval, uh, medieval Europe? So we don't see much of that at all. Instead, what we see, especially in Scandinavia and in Poland, um, bishoprics being defined contiguously with the state, right? I mean, and again, to speak of the state in the medieval, medieval ages is anachronism, but forgive me the shorthand. But instead, what we see, for example, you know, both in Scandinavia and around the periphery in Poland and Bohemia, um, bishoprics being contiguous with the country itself or the territorial claims of the kings, and in fact, reinforcing those territorial claims and reinforcing state building by bishops, for example, um, making sure that you know, those borders are respected by, serving, by preaching, by sending out their administrators and having them only go as far as the boundaries of the state slash uh, bishopric. So what we see in Western Christendom is a very different relationship between the state and church, um, as of course you know, in the first place, but it also is, you know, manifests on this very low level where um, the territorial boundaries of the state are respected by the bishoprics. And in fact, in some places, in some places created by the bishoprics, because those are the lines that are being followed in territorial disputes in some cases. And um, was there any difference in terms of state formation in Catholic and Reformed Protestant regions? You know, I think the really big difference is between Eastern Christendom and Western Christendom, right? And the difference there is basically in 1054 with the, the, the Great Schism. Um, in the East, you have the state and the church cleaving together. In the West, you have them enter into a period of conflict. And as a result, you know, you have legacies of this to this day, right? The churches are very much seen as separate from the state. Even in places like Protestant countries, where the state you know, basically runs the churches, the state controls the churches, they're seen as distinct entities. Whereas in Eastern Christendom, they're seen as much more part of the state itself. Um, and what's interesting is that also changes the kinds of claims that they make on the body politic. Um, Eastern churches really care about competition and about tax policy, right? Western churches care much more about morality, especially the Catholic Church, which has been sort of, you know, held out of secular power in most places. Um, they really care about uh, that much more. When it comes to the difference between state formation in Protestant and Catholic countries, 
Um, you know, it's interesting because, of course, the obvious difference is that the state runs the churches in the Protestant countries, right? Clergy become state employees. There are consistories where basically you have joint representatives on the local level um, sort of enforcing morality policy. Phil Gorski has a wonderful book on the confessionalization of the state, right, and the ways in which the two are sort of, you know, work hand in hand. But even in the Catholic countries, with the Reformation, kings start to control the church. They start to name bishops. They start to control the flow of information. They grab um, resources from the church, and they make it very clear to the Catholic Church that if you want to survive in Spain or in France, you better subordinate uh, some of your claims to our needs. Um, and so I think you know the big difference really is not so much in the processes of state formation as in who does the state forming, right? Whether it's just you know so for in, in the Reformation period in the Catholic Church areas, it's really just secular officials. In the Protestant areas, it's much more likely to be clergy and um, quote-unquote secular officials working together. Um, I have a question about the, uh, the, the the sort of scope of the argument in terms of the, again, geographic limits. And is it limited to the Western and Central European Catholic states, or can it, can it be applied to Eastern European Orthodox states or countries with different dominant religion, especially interesting question, again, given the research focus, which I'm, in, uh, you know, what, what I'm engaged with. Right. So, so I think, you know, the, the, again, to me, the big difference in the, the scope condition here really is Western Christendom. And the reason for that is because Eastern Christendom, it just basically, again, after 1054, takes such a different tack, right? It is basically, you know, part, you know, the, the Byzantine emperors from the very beginning exercise so much more control over the church. Um, and it's the exact, basically, mirror image of what we see in Western Christendom. So rather than playing this active role in developing its own independent templates and sort of showing secular rulers how they can develop taxation or parliaments or anything like that, the church is much more likely to follow in the footsteps of um, the state. And as a result, if you look at me, I'm, I'm not obviously an expert on the Byzantine state, but what you see there is much more continuity with Rome. Right? Even the names of the offices are similar. The division of labor looks very different. The hierarchy of officials looks very different. So I'm very much limiting this argument to Western Christendom um, because as fascinating as the Eastern uh, Christian cases are, they follow a very different path after um, the schism. Um, and another question is what happened after 1648 to the Catholic Church and its territorial jurisdiction. Did it evaporate, and what happened to this causal process of church shaping the institutional capacity and character of now sovereign states? Right. So I think, you know, I, the first thing I would say is I think 1648 is not quite the clear demarcation line that we would like it to be. There's been a lot of sort of new work that contests the idea that Westphalia somehow establishes uh, sovereignty. In fact, notions of sovereignty are already present much, much earlier. But insofar as the church continues to influence politics, you know, the Pope still has his papal territories. He continues to make universal claims. The church is omnipresent. But now what the church has to do is to basically, um, the kind of, you know, the idea that it would make any kind of sort of universal claims on secular rulers has really dissipated. And it dissipated long before 1648. It really dissipated with the, sch the schism within the church, right? And so basically, you know, during the sort of Babylonian exile in Avignon, and then the sort of, you know, the era of multiple popes, that basically from the end of the 14th century to the middle of the 15th, that already dissipated any of those claims because the church showed itself not to be the sort of you know, grand universal authority, but to be composed of people politicking and making alliances and creating coalitions in order to get to the top seat. 
And so you don't see the church exercising as much moral authority. It certainly doesn't have as much access. It no longer can sort of, you know, call upon its allies and send armies into territory. And so it now has to work, it's on the back foot, and it has to work much more indirectly. So, you know, the postcode will still excommunicate rulers, they'll still make grand pronouncements, but no one expects this to hold as much water as it would have in, say, the 13th century. Many thanks. So I have a question from Matisse. Uh, so he wonders about the political agency of the church at the level below the papacy, for example, the role of archbishops, electors um, in the Holy Roman Empire, those of Mainz, Cologne, and Trier. Can you talk about their role, he asks, did they pursue fragmentation, and are there examples of that? Right. So the archbishops, um, just you know, for, for those who might not be familiar, the, you know, the there's a whole bunch of so-called prince bishops in the Holy Roman Empire, um, clergy who also exercise territorial authority. And seven, three of them are elevated to the status of electors. There are seven total electors, and they choose the emperor. So these are incredibly powerful people, um, and everybody recognizes this. I think what, what's really interesting about this is that on the one hand, these are the um, so some of the key officials in insofar as there is an imperial administration, right? Um, one of them, for example, serves as the arch chancellor. The Archbishop Mainz is traditionally the arch chancellor of the empire. So on one hand, they're deeply sort of embedded in um, the sort of exercise of authority within the Holy Roman Empire. On the other hand, it is very much in their interest to protect um, their own territorial authority and to preclude the emperor from centralizing authority. And so they are no different from all the other bishops, sorry, not bishops, uh, all the other princes, who basically, after 1358 and the Golden Bull, make it very clear that they are going to retain their power. And if the emperor wants to get anything done, he has to sort of guarantee those rights to them. So they're very much part of the fragmentation of Europe and uh, fragmentation of the Holy Roman Empire and sustaining that fragmentation by vociferously defending their territorial authority rights just like all the other princes did. Many thanks. Uh, Professor Giannodia asks, to follow up on Tronica's question about state building in Protestant realms, the argument, as I understood, he says, it is that Catholic Church created institutional templates that secular rulers used. But what about Protestant rulers? Did Protestants, whatever theological differences, also follow institutional templates created by the Catholic Church? Or their templates were somehow different? And secondly, did the religious conflict between Catholics and Protestants or different kinds of Protestants contribute to the evolution of modern Western states? Okay, um, so could you repeat the second question? Because I was writing down uh, the first question. But... The, the second question is, did the religious conflict between Catholics and Protestants yeah. or different kinds of Protestants contribute to the evolution of the modern Western state? Yeah, okay. Um, so first about Protestant rulers following uh, Catholic institutional templates. Insofar as those templates had already been institutionalized in those territories, they continue to function. So parliaments, for example, um, function everywhere. You know, it's, there, there's, there's, of course, an absolutist turn, right? And so many of these parliaments just become talking shops or they basically fail to meet. But that happens in both Catholic and Protestant countries, right? There's no sort of distinction. It's not as if Protestant parliaments are somehow more or less active than Catholic ones. So the sort of structures of the rule of law, of parliaments, of administration, of taxation, all remain on the ground. And so Protestant rulers continue to follow those, mostly because by that point, they're not seen as Catholic templates. They're just seen as what you have. These are the familiar institutions that we have, right? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, edu the educational calendar still follows highly agricultural patterns, giving kids the summer off, 
but it doesn't really occur to anyone to change it simply because we're now an industrialized society. So the, the inertia and the path dependence really seem to carry the day. Um, and when it comes to your religious conflict and how that uh, influences uh, state formation. So, you know, again, I think where this really plays out are in these sorts, you know, on the local level and the smaller differences between how local populations are governed, right? So in Geneva, you have a very powerful consistory where, you know, the Calvinists basically rule the city. Um, in, Luther, in Lutheran countries, this is much less sort of evident, but you still have, you know, the two of them working hand in hand. And in Catholic countries, you know, there's sort of a separation and the subordination of the church to state without the kind of you know, comprehensive involvement of the clergy in the state. So I think those are the kinds of differences that we see. Um, and of course, the religious conflicts change to some extent national boundaries. They certainly play a huge role in determining who gets to be ruler and who doesn't, depending on who wins which conflict. Um, but I don't think, you know, religious conflict per se shapes states nearly as much as it did in this earlier medieval period. Um, question from Andrea Mirabishvili. Uh, particular bishops also exercised territorial lordship, and when bishops got sovereign rights, quote, over cities, these cities, quote, asserted the right to govern themselves, end of quote, page 22. And does it mean that these bishops, at least locally, in particular defined space in a city given to them, they exercised sovereign right without having to share with uh, the non-religious lord? Did they collect tax, control the military or policing force, or exercise judicial power? So, you know, as, as always in the Middle Ages, the answer is it depends. In some places, you know, in, there are certain communes in Italy and certain areas in Germany where they certainly exercise that kind of power, where they're basically, you know, collecting taxes and had a council that was assisting them, and they really sort of served a really important role in um, local governments. In other places, they were in constant conflict with the citizens and with the council that, you know, would govern the, the city. So it really depended, and as a result, when you sort of, you know, look at sort of the overall regressions, Bishops don't necessarily um, help communes to arise, right? Some bishops you know, actively fight them, and they actively fight, fight sort of autonomous self local governance. Um, others are more than happy to benefit from it. And so you know, the story of bishops as um, secular rulers varies incredibly. Um, they're given various different sets of powers in different territory. They can sustain those powers differently, and they come into conflict with different kinds of actors. But the idea that bishops can exercise territorial authority is very much present. Um, and we see that in the Holy Roman Empire. We see that in northern Italy, where they basically function in some cases as local princes um, and govern exactly that way, you know, exercising jurisdiction, um, settling disputes, collecting taxes, maintaining uh, roads, uh, and so on. Excellent. Um, um, any further questions from the audience? Um, if, if uh, um, there are no questions, we won't keep uh, too much of the of the time. And um, of course, we're very, very happy to follow up on the, our blog, which is religionandpraxis.com, uh, and we'll be happy to uh, publish some of the key kind of um, uh, takeaways from, from this uh, uh, brief episode. Um, and another one um, here is about the flows of money to the papacy in medieval Europe. And the, the question is, can you briefly elaborate on the flows of money and how does that sort of function? Right. So uh, the papacy basically taxes all of Europe. For the most part, these are clerical taxes. So there's the clerical tenth. Um, you know, they basically collect money from clergy, from bishops, from parishes. They also understand that the local clergy collects money and then uses that to basically provide local uh, welfare goods. 
And so, you know, it's only, it's not that heavy a taxation burden. But the papacy always collects taxes from, um, from basically all the clergy, all the bishops in Europe. The other flow of money, of course, eventually becomes the sale of offices, where, you know, as tax funding dries up, um, you can buy an office in, you can buy a bishopric, you can buy a, an office in the central papal administration, and that's another flow of money. And the third is really secular taxation, where, of course, you know, there's our special needs that the papacy has. This especially um, arises during the Crusades, where in order to defend Christendom, in order to defend papal interests, popes will basically very, um, will ask for more than normal amounts of taxes from various rulers. And for the most part, your know, rulers are happy to give something like called Peter's Pence, which is basically sort of, you know, a penny's worth of income per, um, per capita tax. They're okay with that. They're not so okay with sort of the continued and heavy demands for crusade taxes. And eventually, basically, kings stop paying attention um, and refuse to pay. There's a, that's part of the issue in the enormous conflict between um, Boniface VIII and uh, Philip the Fair. But for the most part, basically, you know, there are, the popes make continual taxation demands. A lot of this money flows back into the papacy, but it's never a very efficient system, right? I mean, again, I think it's critical to emphasize that even though the popes were more efficient administrators than many kings or princes at the time, the porousness of the system um, and so, you know, the lack of enforcement is evident at every sort of step. So, you know, the popes may have been more efficient than others, but compared to almost any tax system in the, in the world today, um, they're much less efficient. How, how is this Christian foundation of Europe used today? If you can give us just a just of the argument, some of your <laughs> publications which I read, but how populists are kind of pulling the trigger of this Christian Europe today? Do, do you notice any patterns or kind of the scope limitations? Yeah, so I think, you know, this idea of a Christian Europe, and it, it, let's be clear, so Christian nationalists and populists don't necessarily reach back all the way to the Middle Ages to make their arguments. But what they do do is to use Christianity as a way of delineating who belongs in Europe and who doesn't, right? Um, and they have to be very careful about this because you don't want to sound anti-Semitic, but it's very useful if you want to exclude Muslims or immigrants. They are not part of Christian Europe. Um, that's the same, those are statements made by Orban, by many of the far-right parties, you know, in Poland, Kaczynski makes the same kinds of claims. And so the Christian heritage of Europe is being used to um, limit the sort of, you know, who belongs as a citizen, to divide people. If you're truly Christian, then you would accept this. If you're, you know, if you're a real Pole, you're Christian. If you're a real Hungarian, you accept Orban's version of Christianity and so on. So it's used mostly as a tool of division and sort of a shrinkage of the political space, of access uh, to the political space. But they don't have to, you know, go back to the Middle Ages to do that. Um, it's just enough to assert, you know, the Christian, the Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition, or simply the Christian tradition, to do this. Excellent. Um, thank you so much for for your for your time, and uh, we're very grateful. Um, also, on behalf of the audience, and I'm, uh, I have to finish this now, and our recording will be available um, in yeah, the next couple of days. And uh, yeah, thanks for, for having uh, this opportunity. Thank you very much.